treatments of bradycardias. Um, and this is certainly a scenario that could come up in the interview. Um, and what I'd advise is that just looking at the ALS algorithm and, and putting it to memory. Um, now, when describing your approach to this, um, with any significant arrhythmia, typically the best thing to do is actually to say that you'd, you'd assess the patient in, a, in an ABCD format, um, looking for evidence essentially of shock, syncope, ischemia or heart failure, where, which would risk stratify how quickly you needed to act. Um, and that would all that often be a good opening gambit for um, approaching any arrhythmia. Um, so following doing that, you'd want to also look for ECG evidence of a high risk of asystole, i.e. a recent asystolic episode if they're on a cardiac monitor and you'd want them on a cardiac monitor, a ventricular pause of greater than three seconds or evidence of uh, second degree Mobitz type two or, or third degree, i.e. complete heart block. Uh, and this is important because it will affect how you treat the patient. Um, you'd also want to, uh, in your assessment, identify any reversible causes that could be treated, such as a drug overdose or electrolyte abnormalities. And if none of the above is present, you could observe the patient by placing them on a cardiac monitor. If the, the, what was described is present, one would need to potentially pace the patient uh, or initiate an interim treatment measure if you're buying time to a more permanent solution, or it's felt that there's an underlying cause that will go away. And so more secure pain wouldn't be needed um, in the longer term. Now, what are those interim measures that you could uh, use? So atropine being the first one, a 500 microgram dose repeated to a maximum of three milligrams, a muscarinic antagonist that acts against the parasympathetic nervous system. Just to note, it has a half-life of between two to five hours. And so that will affect when you would need to think about or how long sorry, your, your treatment would last for when you need to think about further treatments. Further treatments could also include an isoprenaline or an adrenaline infusion. And then the next step would be temporary pacing, which could be uh, via the transvenous route or transcutaneous route. And we'll talk a bit about the practicalities of, of both. Just, just to note for transvenous pacing, this is essentially a pacing wire inserted into the RV to allow ventricular pacing via a venous catheter, typically via the femoral vein. Um, now, transcutaneous pacing, it may be that you'd have to logistically describe how you go about doing it. So an awareness of that is useful. So how would you do it? You'd have the defibrillation pads on and monitoring electrodes as well, a three lead monitor onto the defibrillation machine. You'd want to organize for the patient to be sedated. Um, and that means that you may call anesthetic help using your MDT. Um, and the next step would be to choose the pacing mode on the defibrillation machine. So you have an on-demand mode and a fixed pacing mode. Uh, um, and the on-demand mode basically paces when no QRS complex is detected. But the, the issue with that is that sometimes movement artifacts can look like a QRS and then no pacing occurs. So the safer one typically is the fixed pacing rate. You then would select the pacing rate. So for example, 60 beats per minute, and once you've selected that um, rate to pace, uh, you would uh, increase the current that's delivered um, and to observe pacing spikes and then look for capture QRS complexes. And typically in terms of the current that you need, 
typically people need around 50 to 100 milliamps of energy. Uh, and once the capture is seen, you would feel for, you would assess, sorry, for mechanical capture. So do they have a pulse? Um, and it may be that you come across a scenario where you don't see any capture on the maximum settings. Um, and then what do you think then? Well, things that you can think about are, is it that the myocardium is actually non-viable? And in your assessment, you'd also perform a transthoracic echo. Um, it could also be that there are electrolyte abnormalities um, and uh, you'd want to correct those. Uh, and the last thing is you could always just try and change the pad position. Um, so that's your... Uh, they are the key aspects that essentially follow the ALS algorithm of how you treat a bradycardia. And just a good in-depth knowledge of those is something that you should have for the interview. Um, before we move on, Barrick, anything to, to add? Um, no, I think just, so just to put it into context, I suppose, is atropine is often given by LAS before the patient even gets to hospital. I think by the time they're under the under your care as a cardiologist, you should talk about giving atropine because it's in the algorithm. But uh, the next thing that's very commonly used, if a patient's um, slightly compromised, but you don't want to necessarily have to think about uh, pacing either transcutaneous or transvenous, is an isoprenal infusion. And you can start at uh, a rate of one and go up sequentially um, to, to, to see an improvement. Um, and that is typically what's tried, what's often used to try and hold patients, especially in the overnight setting. And that's when, and if that starts to fail, then you start thinking, realistically, transcutaneous is quite a pain for the patients, um, pain for you metaphorically and pain for them physically. Um, so you often, I don't, off, I haven't often seen transcutaneous pacing used, and quite often you go straight to putting a temporary pacing wire overnight, which as Rule said, is from the uh, via the femoral um, vein and you uh, float, a, float a wire up. There's one actually with a, a floating balloon. So once it goes a, a floating balloon, you inflate it and it actually goes across the tricuspid valve into the right biventricle uh, and sits there. So um, yeah, I think that's that's just some uh, some context to it. And also the point about electrolyte, electrolyte abnormalities and reversible things, very common things with bugbear all cardiologists, patients being on uh, calcium channel blocker and a beta blocker at the same time so rapamil and bisoprolol uh, look out for things like that and I think if you've got anyone who's bradycardic there's no real excuse or anyone who's unwell really there's no excuse not to do a VBG which should pick up most um, obvious electrolyte abnormalities um, until you wait for the lab electrolytes to come back so those two things just two things to mention yeah fantastic okay um so next we'll talk about indications for permanent pacing in bradycardia. And there are a lot of indications and we'll run through some of the common ones to be aware of. Um, so we'll start off with sinus disease. So in, with, in sinus bradycardia causing symptoms where no reversible cause has been found and the symptoms are clearly attributed to the bradycardia, pacemaker uh, can be considered. And also in sinus nose node disease, um, such as a kind of tachybrady syndrome resulting in clear symptoms, um, a pacemaker can be indicated. As Barrick discussed in second degree Mobitz type two block or third degree heart block, irrespective of symptoms, a pacemaker would be indicated. Um, going back to the sinus disease, if you have significant pauses, so six seconds at night, three seconds in the day, irrespective of symptoms, that would be an indication. Um, 
patients in permanent AF with paroxysmal or permanent AV block where one can't essentially give rate control medications, um, a pacemaker would be indicated. Um, and also, as Barrick mentioned, bifascicular or trifascicular block with clear symptoms. Um, and kind of trifascicular block, we mean the, the misnomer trifascicular block. Um, so there are certain indications for a permanent pacemaker. Um, Barrick, why don't you talk us through how you'd consent someone for a pacemaker? Sure. Um, the, the only thing I'd say before thinking about pacemaker, I think a really good candidate would talk about the fact that if someone's going to have a pacemaker and is going to be ventricularly pacing very often, i.e. you're pacing, they've got mobus 2 or complete heart block, um, then should it be a patient that we need to consider a CRTP instead mm. of a pacemaker? So a really good candidate would say, if they're going to be ventricularly pacing very often, um, I'd want to make sure that I have a good look at a transthoracic echo beforehand, um, because that might guide my uh, choice of device, um, because he may, the patient may benefit from a conduction system pacing or CRTP. Uh, so that's just something to bear in mind. Uh, consenting five out of five. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like consenting for a pacemaker. So again, uh, one of the very standard procedures we do in cardiology, and all candidates should be aware of a pacemaker. So a pacemaker, um, I would first of all tell in layman terms to the patient what a pacemaker is. Uh, so essentially, it's a device that goes uh, under the under the left clavicle, underneath the skin. Um, it's about this big, uh, and it's a device with wires that go into the heart that will take over the electrical function of the heart when needed. So it will allow your heart to do its, uh, to use its own conduction system, but when it fails, the pacemaker will be in the backup um, and it will deliver an electrical impulse, uh, which will help the heart to beat at the right time. Um, and then in terms of the procedure, it's a procedure that's uh, done under local. Um, we don't often use sedation unless the patient's very agitated. Um, so done under local anaesthetic. Um, and we would, uh, done under local anaesthetic, and the procedure takes about, say, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and the patient's awake for the procedure. And the relative risks are, as always, bleeding, infection um, uh, around the wound site and vascular complications as we access uh, the vessels that we need to get to to get down to the heart and the problems of the heart itself. So uh, you can cause um, a hole, hole in the heart, you can cause problems with the valves and you can cause um, damage to the lungs as well. And you give a, a, you give a risk of about less than 1% for any of those complications. Um, and so after and then you talk about, I suppose, the aftercare for a pacemaker, they'll have a bandage on. Uh, it's very important to not get it wet. And it's very, very important. And the worst thing that can happen to a pacemaker is it getting infected. I think as a candidate, if you can show that you're aware of that, uh, the importance of infection control uh, for pacemaker implantation and post-pacemaker care, that's very good. Um, so importance of not getting it wet and not, uh, not uh, tell the patient not to actually fiddle with the wound at all um, to make sure you keep it as sterile as possible. And that's what, what I talk about when consenting for a pacemaker. Yeah, nice, nice. And I think what I like there is you, you kept it quite simple. You didn't go um, overboard. 
you know layman terms that that's the key really isn't it when when describing when consenting yeah um yeah okay uh so that brings an end to our knowledge video on bradycardias i hope you enjoyed it uh and we're going to uh there will be an associated video uh working through a clinical scenario that you can have a look at thanks so much